reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your, your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. You shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely. And so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord your God. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. This is the word of our Lord God. Thanks be to God. Please pray with me. Father, we give you thanks for your word. And we thank you that it's a living word. You promised to send the spirits upon the preaching of it, give it power beyond words on a page to search and separate, to sanctify, to save. So we pray, Heavenly Father, that you would send the spirit to help us as we seek to read your word, mind the riches of it and do it. Apply it to our lives. We ask this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Morning, everybody. Morning. Been a while. <laughs> We've been on the road a lot. Uh, if you're new, my name's Rob Sturdy. I'm one of the missionaries sponsored by this uh, church. This is our, our church as well. And uh, I'm sponsored as a chaplain at the military prison of South Carolina in Charleston. <laughs> also a grad. That's why I can talk about it like that, you know. I can talk about my uncle like that, but you better not. It works like that. So um, had a good start to the year. Got 170 kids coming to chapel, more than double what we had last year. Uh, had a young man that's been with us two years as an atheist. He, he just came to Christ about a week and a half ago. I'm going to baptize him uh, October 11th, uh, uh, retreat weekend. He, he told me, um, here's my problem. I've come to believe Jesus is the Son of God. And I love him. I don't like Christians too much. And I said, well, I have a lot of sympathy with this, you know. But that's no barrier to baptism. So thanks uh, for your support to us in the many ways that you've provided. We're happy to be here with you this morning. There's a Canadian philosopher. His name's Charles Taylor. And uh, he recently observed this. I'll, I'll read it to you. Our age makes higher demands of solidarity and benevolence on people today than ever before. 
Never before have people been asked to stretch out so far, so consistently, so systematically, so as a matter of course to the stranger outside the gates. A similar point can be made if we look at the other dimension of the affirmation of ordinary life. That concerned with universal justice. Here too, we are asked to maintain standards of equality which cover wider and wider classes of people, bridge more and more kinds of differences, impinge more and more on our lives. Let me translate that dense paragraph for you. Despite all the fears of our parents and our grandparents, the kids are going to be just fine. <laughs> Though moral relativism, the idea that there are no moral absolutes, that all morality is essentially decided upon by the individual, though the idea of it exists, and though the idea of it is enormously popular, it's rare to find in practice. In other words, you can find college students writing essays about moral relativism, passionately engaging it, but you put them on the street, they stop believing it. Because our practice, the, particularly the practice of the young people, particularly the practice of young people I work with, demonstrates we are in a moral age populated by passionate moral advocates for justice and equality, particularly for those people that Taylor says are outside the gates. Minorities, the poor, the vulnerable, the refugee, as Taylor notes, these moral interests are not just limited to our immediate communities. They, as might have been only uh, 20 or 10 years ago, where our obligation to love our neighbor was defined by the city we lived in. Our global age means we've entered into a global moral age. Our moral obligation to love those outside the gates is a global expression of neighbor love on behalf of pro-democracy protesters in Hong Kong. Oppressed women in Afghanistan, hurricane victims in the Bahamas, people suffering from drought in East Africa, all of a sudden are global neighbors, object of our global concern, our moral obligation to love. Taylor's right. Never before have been people asked to stretch out so far, so consistently, so systematically, so as a matter of course, to the stranger outside the gates on a global stage. We love our neighbor. He concludes with a pretty obvious question. How in the world do we manage to do that? This enormously demanding obligation to love our neighbors. That's what I want to talk with you about this morning. Given that we're moral people, often morally passionate people, seeking to be moral people on a global stage, how do we manage to do it? That question is important to the project of this church over the next couple of weeks as we seek to explore how we love our neighbors. What's it look like? This morning, I want to explore the following questions through Leviticus chapter 19, starting at verse 9. Happy if you want to follow along. And here's the things I want, to, I want us to think through. Is there a universal moral law, universal moral code by which we're obligated to love other people, love our neighbors? Does it have limits? Last but not least, how can we become moral people? How can we keep... Keep this code, keep this law, if such a thing exists. Here's question number one. Is there a moral code? Is there a, a universal moral law that obligates everyone? There's a certain segment of the Christian population that's tempted to answer no to this question. No, there's not a universal moral code open to all people, they might say. There's a specific moral code found only in the Bible. 
These Christians often believe that the moral ills besetting our country, like high rates of teen suicide and depression, mass shooting, social polarization, are all the result of removing prayer and the Bible from schools and other public spaces left without the Bible. So the thinking goes, society is going to fall headlong into the very worst kinds of morality. The assumption behind this kind of thinking is that humans need the Bible precisely because they have no moral compass of their own. That's the way the thinking goes. But it turns out people do have a moral compass of their own, whether they read this book or not. And our reading today is one of the quickest ways to prove it. You look at the reading if you have it open in front of you. Our reading says in verses 9 and 10 that people with an abundance of resources should use some of those resources to provide for the needs of those who have nothing. Our reading says in verse 11, we ought not steal or tell lies or cheat others. Our reading says in verse 12 that we ought not use our religion or God's name so that others more, may more quickly believe our fragile or insincere promises. Trust me, I swear to God. Our reading says in verse 13 that people who do work for us deserve to be paid. And that it is a great moral failure when they go unpaid. Our reading says in verse 14 that people with disabilities should be treated with respect. It says that to make fun of them is a terrible sin against the Lord. Our reading says in verse 15 that rich people should not have preferential treatment in court over the poor. Our reading says in verse 16, we shouldn't gossip to build up ourselves in private, but we should speak the truth in public to defend the victim or rescue those falsely accused. And do you know what modern secular humanists say to that list? They might sum up what I just said to you. That's just what it means to be a good person. And they might quickly add to that. We don't need your book to teach us to do those things. We know those things are right already. And you know what? If they were to say that, they're not saying anything the Apostle Paul didn't already say in his letter to the Romans. What's the Apostle Paul say in his letter to the Romans? The Apostle Paul says that when people read what we read this morning and they say, that's right, that's what it means to be a good person, Paul says they prove that they have the work of the law written on their hearts and their consciences confirm it. So as to the question, is there a universal moral code, a universal moral law that outlines our obligations to our neighbor? We can say yes. It is written in detail in this book that God has given us. It is written in sentiments and aspirations and intuitions of the human hearts of every person that has ever lived or breathed on this earth. They've had it inscribed on their heart. And if Paul is right, if the law is written on every human heart, there should be an enormous amount of moral common ground, not only between Christians and non-Christian people, but between Republicans and Democrats, between the rich and the poor, between country folk and city folk. I imagine if there were more common ground between country folk and city folk, there never would have been a song called Southern Accent. 
Only one person knows the song. That's why he laughed. Look it up later, you heathens. <laughs> common ground, I don't know if you would agree with this, but common ground really isn't something that comes to mind these days. Between people with competing faiths or people with competing political views, ideologies, which leads to the next question. The next question is, does the moral law inscribed on the heart or written in this book, does it have limits? Yes, but you have to be very careful to define the limits. Does the moral code, the moral law written on the heart, uh, does it have limits of what it might demand of us? Does it have limits of what it might ask of us? And the answer is no, it does not. There are no limits to what this might demand of you. There is no situation that you could be put in where there would be an asterisk next to should I gossip about this person and tell the truth about them. It has no limits. Does this code written on the human heart have limits in terms of who it may be applied to, who we might be obligated to keep it against? No, it does not. Does this code have the power to bring about what it commands? No, it does not. And that's the limits. That's the limit of Leviticus chapter 19. That's the limit of the Ten Commandments. That's the limit of the aspirations and intentions of the human heart to, to be a good person. In other words, just simply telling someone not to gossip or lie about someone else actually give you power to do it. Does the speed limit have power to prevent you from speeding? No, it does not. It just tells you that if you are speeding, you're wrong or late to church. <laughs> That's the limit of the law, whether it's written in the book with pages or written on the book of the human heart. That's the limit. We can't just stop there. It is important for us to go further. It's not enough for us to make a common sense observation that laws don't actually have power in and of themselves to prevent people from breaking them, we need to go further and we need to ask a much more disturbing question. And the more disturbing question is this. If the law is graven on the heart, if I have a conscience, if I intuitively know right from wrong, if I'm born with knowledge of how to treat my neighbor, if I never miss Sunday school, I take notes during every sermon, I carry about my Bible in my hand that tells me in detail how I'm to love my neighbor, why can't I do it? That's the much more disturbing question. There are many answers to the question. I just want to give you two ways to think through why it's so hard for me not to love all of my neighbors, but why it's so hard for me to love some of them. First reason is that you and I have an endless ability to excuse our obligations to our neighbors. An endless ability. And the second reason is that you and I have a terrible time seeing how grievously we fall short from holding to our own moral standards, while at the same time, an expert ability at pointing out how other people fall short. And I want to briefly describe both of them to you. The first reason that you and I, uh, we have an endless ability to excuse our own obligations to our neighbor. Helpfully described by civil rights activist and theologian Howard Thurman, in a book that he wrote called Jesus and the Dispossessed, I'd, I'd encourage all of you to read it. Thurman's wrestling with this idea of people who know the law, people who had the book, people who sang the hymns, but they were incapable of expressing 
love of neighbor to a certain group of other people. To their black neighbors. And Thurman describes a process of, of how this is brought about. Your obligation to love your neighbor fails or, or is excused when you have contact with someone, but you don't have fellowship. Contact is what uh, contact without fellowship is contact without warmth. It's contact without fellow feeling. It's contact without understanding. Contact without getting to know someone's story, their struggles and their successes. He said that contact without fellowship expresses itself in lack of sympathy. Lack of sympathy grows into ill will. Finally, ill will grows into what Thurman described as walking hatred on earth. I walked out that process this summer in a pretty embarrassing and shameful way. I was the chaplain to a high school Christian summer camp. And there was a teen at this high school Christian summer camp who was extremely loud and abrasive and rude. And I had contact with him. Sat behind us at breakfast every day. I led devotions for him every morning. Preached to him every night. I had a lot of contact with this young man, but I had no fellowship with him. So what do you think contact with a loud, abrasive, rude teenager does to me? Well, it expressed itself in a lack of sympathy. Had no understanding of this. I mean, that lack of sympathy led to ill will. Started purposely avoiding him. Started doing my best not to be near him. And that ill will expressed itself in hateful thoughts. Because I began to talk about how annoying he was with other counselors. Who agreed with me? <laughs> how irritating he was and how rude he was. And, and then I, I had a really humbling experience because this young man came to ask me for prayer. And I prayed for him because I have to. You may not know this. Pastors don't love everyone in the church. But everyone in the church who asks for prayer in a conversation is going to get one because that's what pastors do. So I sat down with this young man that I really didn't want to sit down with. I listened to this young man I really didn't want to listen to. And here's what he told me. My father is distant. He's emotionally abusive. On one, on one occasion, he physically abused me. Never once in 18 years has he ever told me he loves me. I am desperate for the attention of older men. That's why I'm loud. That's why I'm abrasive. I know that's why I'm loud. I know that's why I'm abrasive. I hate that I'm loud. I hate that I'm abrasive. I can't help it. Here's what happened between me and that young man. We, we had contact, but on that Thursday night, we had fellowship. And on the night we had fellowship, I was deeply ashamed of myself. Because I had failed to do the kinds of things that I tell people to do all the time. But once I had some sympathy, I had some understanding. Once I had some understanding, then there was some love there, you see. So we, we have this law on the heart. We know how to treat people. How is it that we don't treat, treat our neighbors always with love and respect? Well, Thurman's right about this. In, in some instances, it's because you have contact with people, but no fellowship with them. 
And when you have contact with people without fellowship, it, it leads to a lack of sympathy, which leads to ill will, which leads to walking hatred on earth. All of a sudden, you might be keeping, keeping the laws. You know how to keep it with some people, but not with all people. That's a problem, right? It's a problem that you and I have. That's the first reason. Here's the second reason. You and I have a terrible time seeing how grievously we fall short from holding our own moral standards. While, at the same time, we have an amazing ability to point out the failures of other people. There's a story in the Old Testament about a king named David and a prophet named Nathan. It might, might help us understand this, this problem. I'll, I'll tell you the story. If you're new to Christianity, you might not be familiar with the story. But, but here's what happened. A man named Nathan, who's a prophet, he comes to see David. And he tells him a story about a rich man and a poor man. The rich man has plenty of money, plenty of food. Plenty of livestock, including a very large number of sheep. The poor man has nothing at all except a little lamb that he feeds with his own hand, who, who drinks from his own cup, who he cradles in his own arms. It says like a little child. One day a visitor comes to see the rich man. And Nathan says the rich man thought it would be a pity to take one of his own sheep. So guess what he did? He went down the road, he took the poor man's sheep, the only one he had, slaughtered it and he gave it to his guest. David doesn't need to stop and say, let me consult Leviticus chapter 19 and see if this is right. He is morally outraged. Scripture says that he burned with anger and he says, I solemnly swear as the Lord lives, the man who did this certainly deserves to die. David is able to see when someone else fails to love their neighbor. He's able to see it clearly. He's able to see it crisply. But he's not able to see his failure to do so. Because what Nathan says next is, You're the man. I'm talking about you. And if you don't know the story, you, know, you might be thinking, well, What the heck does Nathan mean? Well, here's what Nathan meant. Shortly before he heard this story, David, who's already married, sees a woman on her rooftop. She's bathing. Her name's Bathsheba. She's married as well to a man named Uriah. David has the woman taken to his home where he commits adultery with her. And to cover up his sin, he kills Uriah and he takes Bathsheba. He's not able to see it. He can excuse his failure to love his neighbor because he's the one that failed to do it. And one of the things about this story is you and I will always be able to find ways to excuse ourselves. All the while holding other people accountable. We're, we're ready to do that. And so uh, these are the limits. These are the limits of the law, whether it's written in this book or this book. These are the limits. We're in a moral age. We're faced with global moral demands. We don't have power to meet even the most basic demands. So we return to the question, how in the world do we manage to do something like this? Well, how we manage to do something like this is we need to be able to see how, how clearly and how deep the problem is while at the same time getting our, our hearts engaged in the solution of the problem. And, uh, and the law is insufficient about this because if, if all I ever do is point my finger at you 
and tell you how you have failed to love your neighbor, what does that make you do? It makes you really defensive. This is why people hate moralists. Because they hate defending themselves all the time from accusations. And so we, we need something stronger than just a finger pointed at us. We need something we don't have to defend ourselves from. And this is why Paul, he says that the gospel is the wisdom of God. Because, because the gospel shows us clearly what is deeply flawed about this. While at the same time doing something besides pointing a finger. What's the gospel say? Well, the, the gospel says that God who wrote the law on your heart. God who inspired the law in this book. That God put on flesh. And what did he do? He became your neighbor. And Dorothy Sayers, she said, one of the most persuasive things about Christianity is that God takes his own medicine. What's that mean? God takes his own medicine by becoming a man, Jesus of Nazareth, who is obligated to keep the law. Who has the law written on his heart? A law without limits. A law that says must be applied to everyone. God takes his own medicine. He's obligated to keep the law. That's not the only way God takes his own medicine, though. Because God, when he became our neighbor, is an object of your love. Or not. And this is what we learn about God, our neighbor. In reference to the law. What we learn about God, our neighbor, is he was a he was a poor neighbor. When you harvest your grain, always leave some of it standing along the edges of your field. Don't pick up what falls to the ground. Don't strip your grapevines clean or gather the grapes that fall. Leave them for the poor. What do we find Jesus doing in Matthew's gospel? Walking around the edges of the field, picking the grain off the ground. You know why he did that? Because he's your poor neighbor. Do you love your neighbor as you love yourself? Be fair, no matter who's on trial. Don't favor either the poor or the rich. Don't be a gossip, but never hesitate to speak up in court, especially if your testimony can save someone's life. Does Jesus, your neighbor, get preferential treatment when he's on trial for his life? Is he gossiped about? Is he lied about? Does anyone stand up? Does anyone stand up to give a testimony to save his life? God, your neighbor? Do you love your neighbor? Don't hold grudges. It's wrong to correct someone. It's wrong not to correct someone who needs correcting. Stop being angry. Don't try to take revenge. Do you love God, your neighbor? So you see, God takes his own medicine because he's an object of your love or something else. And God becomes subject to the fullness of our inability to keep this law. Because he's the most wronged man that ever lived or that ever could live. That's step one in beginning to undermine some of the way this works in all the wrong ways, but that's not enough.
Because there's a second step. And the second step is that the most wronged man on earth does not suddenly say, you know, I read this, but as I'm, as I'm naked and lied about and beaten and crucified, I've not come to the conclusion that this doesn't apply to them anymore. Because out of the fullness of what he has on the cross, he gives abundantly an abundant amount of grace and an abundant amount of mercy and an abundant amount of blood until he has nothing left to give. He, he is not harvesting his crops and leaving scraps. He's giving everything he has for his neighbor. And dying on the cross, he also says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Because that's an expression of neighbor love as well. So here's the thing. God becomes someone who dies because of our inability to love our neighbors. Doesn't prevent him from being a good neighbor back to us. He has been a good neighbor for 2,000 years. Never once has he stopped being a good neighbor to this world. This world might be the worst enemy that God our neighbor has ever had. But God's not an enemy to this world because God sees this world as his neighbor. These are the things that begin to undermine our inability to keep the law. These are the kind of things that help us manage learning to love our neighbor. So let me just close with two quick things. Here's thing number one. If you want to learn how to grow in this, you can take some cues from Jesus. And some cues from Jesus are that contact without fellowship is something unknown to the Lord Jesus Christ. God took on flesh so he could have contact and fellowship with this world. The Gospels tell us that he understands what it means to be tired. He understands what it means to be poor. He understands what it means to be angry. He understands what it means to be gossiped and lied about. He has fellowship with this world. And the author of Hebrews tells us because he has fellowship, he has sympathy. Sympathy. Tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin, able to sympathize, not point the finger. And he's walking love on earth. What is a first step you could take to apply some of this to your life. You could think about somebody you have contact with, but no fellowship. Somebody you have allowed ill will to foster in your heart. Somebody with whom you have bloomed thoughts of hatefulness about. And you could move from contact to fellowship with them and just see what happens. You could become their neighbor. That's what the gospel says that God did with us. He became our neighbor. That's one thing for you Christians whom the work of Jesus has engaged your heart. That's one thing you could do. If you're here exploring, if you're here wondering about Jesus, then uh, the thing I'd most want to say to you is this. There is a lot of representation from religious communities that God has contact with you, but no fellowship. And you might have experienced that through the wrong end of a pointed finger and a thumped on Bible. We can't really, we don't believe in Bible thumping here because the podium won't take it. 
this, this book undermines your experience of religion. Because this book teaches that God could have come with a pointed finger, but he came in a son with open arms. That's what this book teaches. His arms are no longer pinned open like they were on Good Friday. That doesn't mean he's closed them. They are open. And he's not weary of keeping them open. He would have you in his arms because he wants fellowship. Because he has sympathy and an enormous amount of love for his neighbor, you see. Let's pray. Father, we ask uh, that the power of the gospel might teach us to learn to love our neighbor. Pray that we wouldn't shrink away from the conviction of the Holy Spirit where we failed. But we also pray that the power of Jesus and the love of Jesus might give us the, the will and the want to do what He has done with this world. Pray for those coming to know You that You would persuade them through a variety of means that, that God's their friend and their neighbor would take them into His own house, give His own wares, restore them with His own life. We ask this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.